Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Victory Kitchen. Today we're going to be talking about a wartime Thanksgiving. In this episode we're going to be talking about how the war changed Thanksgiving celebrations. We're going to be taking a look at some ration-friendly Thanksgiving menus and we'll be talking about two of the most iconic staples of an American Thanksgiving feast, the turkey and cranberry sauce. So let's dig in. Welcome to the Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I hope you are all doing well. This is a surprise episode. Hooray! (laughs) I am taking a break. Well, I was, but uh, I was very inspired to do this holiday episode. Uh, A a few of my patrons on Patreon had suggested to do some episodes about holiday wartime traditions and food, and so I thought this was a great opportunity to do that. I hope you will pardon my voice. I'm getting over a nasty cold, but I'm over the worst of it, so hopefully I'll be fine. (laughs) I wanted to start off by uh, thinking about you know, one of the most iconic images of American wartime Thanksgiving, which to me is the Norman Rockwell painting entitled Freedom from Want. This is an image that captures a family right as the mother is placing a large turkey on the table. Everyone is smiling and excited to start this feast. And now actually the feast doesn't look very big. (laughs) It's just the the focus is on this huge, enormous turkey. There is actually some cranberry sauce in the picture, which we will get to that. (laughs) But it's the log. And uh, I believe there's some vegetables on the table as well. And, you know, the message of this painting is freedom from want. And, you know, the American tradition of Thanksgiving as it has evolved is that, you know, Thanksgiving is a time to feast and a time of plenty um, to celebrate gratitude and the harvest, all of these things together, you know, being together as a family and just celebrating all these good things. But as Americans entered their first Thanksgiving season at war in 1942, it was with solemn thoughts and heavy hearts. We were in a world war. Loved ones were gone from the tables, serving in the military or busy working long shifts in factories. The country was facing food shortages and price inflation. While as a whole, Americans had it better than most in the world, the war didn't make it easy on anyone. My friend Carrie and fellow World War II historian, she has an account on Instagram, Homefront History, where she curates her amazing collection of World War II paraphernalia and artifacts. It's incredible. You should check her out on Instagram. And she posted something that was really inspiring to me uh, about Thanksgiving, and she shared the resource with me. It's from the Evening Star 
um, out of Washington, D.C., published in November 22nd, 1942. And it was this article written by Roy F. Hendrickson. He was the man in charge of Lend-Lease food shipments to our allies. And this article was entitled, We'll Share Thanksgiving. And he says, In our home, as in millions of others throughout the nation, Thanksgiving has always been one of the brightest days of the calendar. It has always been a day of gaiety, of happy reunions, and above all, of eating enormously for the sheer joy of eating. It will be different this year. We shall feast, of course, and there will be turkey, just as in the past, but some of the trimmings will be missing. We won't use pork sausage in preparing the turkey stuffing. There will be no olive oil in the salad dressing, no bananas in the fruit bowl. The array of cakes and pies will be less impressive than in the past. Other familiar palate-tickling delicacies will be absent, too. In these very scarcities, however, lies a new reason why we should be thankful to our Creator this Thanksgiving. We should thank God that we are sharing our abundance with others. We should be thankful not only for the food we eat, but also for the food we are doing without. This year, in the midst of war, we are neither poor nor complacent. We have just harvested the largest crop in our history, yet the Thanksgiving season finds us scrimping in order to share our great bounty with others. Every day, we are taking $5 million worth of food from our larder and running it through a gauntlet of bombs and torpedoes to our friends and allies in other parts of the world. The good which is being accomplished for all freedom-loving people by these vast food shipments is so great as to be incalculable. Reports reaching me daily show that in every quarter of the globe, American food, the food we are doing without, is sustaining the cause of human liberty and enabling the fighters and workers of the United Nations to strike against the forces of tyranny and oppression. American food is in the battle wherever United Nations troops are fighting. American dried eggs, powdered milk, and dehydrated meat sustain the gallant garrisons at Malta and Gibraltar in the Solomons and scores of other outposts. A limited amount of our food is even getting through to our starving friends in the occupied countries, in fighting Yugoslavia, Greece, and stricken Poland. Everywhere the food we are doing without is providing strength for the armed forces and workers of our allies and keeping alive the sparks of freedom that one day will blaze into a conflagration to sweep tyranny and slavery from the face of the earth. Considering all these things I told my wife, I was solemnly grateful that our Thanksgiving dinner table would not be so sumptuously laden this year as it had been in the past. I feel that my 130 million of fellow Americans should be grateful too. And if we are called upon to scrimp still further on food, if we are asked to make much greater sacrifices, let us still be thankful. Let us thank God for the food we aren't eating. I I really love the sentiment that he's expressing here because while they are doing without... And, you know, in the midst of holidays, it's frustrating when you can't get what you want normally for your feasts. Um, You know, it can be frustrating and it's easy to complain. But he's um, expressing the sentiment that he's grateful for what they're doing without because what it means is that they are actually providing for the people who have so little and um, that are starving. So... Um, it's just a really great reminder uh, for this time that they're in. Now, not everyone had such a, a heartwarming feeling about this time of year in wartime. There, there were more stark viewpoints of America's responsibilities 
There was another man, Rush Duskin, who said, We all no doubt on Thanksgiving Day would be sitting down to a plentiful dinner and would be happy and have our friends around us. Underneath, we should be serious, very serious. Millions of human beings are starving. Let us be honest with ourselves. We civilians are fighting this war in luxury. Many are making more money and bigger profits than ever before, and yet we complain about the 10% nick that is deducted from our checks, and that 10% is the best investment on earth. While enjoying the Thanksgiving menu, we should seriously think of our responsibilities. The whole world is in a state of chaos, and we cannot shift our blame. America today reaches around the world, and we must be ready and willing to accept the responsibilities. We must create a community spiritual atmosphere so that the returning soldiers will feel that what they have done has been worthwhile. At the end of World War I, returning soldiers found that many had profited excessively from the war and that the main object in life seemed to be getting all you could, even at the expense of the other man. We should have intelligence enough to avoid a repetition of that mistake. So he's having more of a warning that, you know, what we know that Americans were quite living in luxury compared to many other nations during this time and to not forget that. And that as soldiers come home from the war, just to remember our responsibilities to make it make them understand that what they have been fighting for has been worthwhile and that there hasn't been profiteering (laughs) during the war, uh, which is such a shame as what happened in World War One. So very interesting uh, opposing uh, viewpoints uh, at this time period in, in 1942 Thanksgiving. Most messages, though, were about how Thanksgiving symbolized a way of life for America that was worth preserving or that was patriotic. That was kind of the general overall thought when you read in the newspapers about this time of year. In one newspaper in Georgia, the Columbus Ledger, in 1942, they described, Taking as a broad symbol, it reminds us all that as citizens, we do have much to be thankful for, for our democracy and our individual freedom to live the way we see fit. Because of these, we have gotten a living from the land that is good and that yields enough for every day and enough to fill our holiday tables with plenty. So, you know, kind of a pretty generic, you know, we have our democracy and our freedom and you know, all those good things. In the Burlington Free Press from Vermont, and also in 1942, they say, Thanksgiving this year takes on a deeper meaning. We'll go to church with thanks in our hearts that our star-spangled banner still waves over the land of the free, and a prayer on our lips that peace may soon come to a war-torn world and freedom to its millions of oppressed. Freedom to worship in their own way, to live in their own homes and with their loved ones. Freedom to earn a living in their own way and freedom to live. Yes, whatever sacrifices we have had to make or whatever sacrifices we may be asked to make in the future, we still have much to be thankful for this year. So let's plan a patriotic star-spangled dinner with our own American colors of red, white, and blue and our own traditional American foods of turkey and cranberries, pumpkin and squash, and the fruits of an abundant harvest. So along with this article, there's a picture of a turkey with cranberry sauce stars topping thin slices of sautéed apple rings <laughs> so that you are having your star-spangled border for the Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> and I actually came across another uh, photograph of Barbara Britton, who is soon to star in Paramount's Star-Spangled Rhythm. 
she's showing off a U.S. flag cake that she herself had made for Thanksgiving. And the stripes were made with alternate rows of cranberry sauce and marshmallow sauce. So there was this patriotic theme for Thanksgiving, which I found very interesting that it wasn't just for Fourth of July, (laughs) that it was, you know, a very strong theme at the beginning of the war. Now, Thanksgiving wasn't just changed in terms of attitudes. It changed in terms of how the holiday was celebrated. There was less family, less traveling, changed circumstances, and even changed living arrangements. How they shared their meals was different. In the evening sun from Pennsylvania, dated 19th of November, 1943, it says... Heretofore, Thanksgiving has been a traditional celebration to give thanks for our bounty and harvest. This year, Thanksgiving will have an additional concept, the concept of sharing, of the golden rule of helping to make our food fight for freedom at home and throughout the world. Now, this was a quote from a government booklet explaining how November was designated Food Fights for Freedom Month. It continues, let us remember it when we select our holiday guests. Family gatherings are out if they mean using much gasoline or taking a trip by rail or bus. Share your Thanksgiving dinner with someone nearby. If it is possible, invite a serviceman or two or three to come to your house. Or had you thought of asking the couple down the street, the ones who work in a war plant, they will have no holiday on November 25th. Why not share yours? So this idea of sharing your holiday meal with others... Uh, was definitely something that was encouraged, not just in 1943, like this article when it was printed, but in 1942 as well. You know, sometimes there were soldiers that were lucky enough to be home on furlough that they were able to join their families. Also, restaurants served Thanksgiving meals and some provided entertainment. And though it was discouraged, many people did travel to see family. Something I found interesting was in the Bangor Daily News from Maine, they featured a page in 1942 and 1943 that was full of what people were doing for the Thanksgiving holiday, kind of like a society page. It was who was going where to celebrate. So in 1942, the headline read, First Wartime Thanksgiving Observed with Simple Family Gatherings. In 1943, the headline read, Pilgrim holiday being observed in Bangor with family dinner parties. So in the 1943 article, it says Bangor people are carrying on in this war Thanksgiving day. Despite the fact that many loved ones are at the four corners of the earth and rationing has crippled many a holiday menu, people are opening their homes that the pilgrim holiday may be observed in traditional manner. Many homes are lonely due to the fact that sons, husbands, brothers, and fathers are unable to be present But the family is, as usual, having Thanksgiving dinner and keeping that home as nearly as possible as it always was in order that those in the service may return and find New England traditions unbroken during their absence in the service. So I find this really interesting that these Thanksgiving traditions are, I mean, yes, Maine is in New England, But many of these Thanksgiving traditions are associated with New England. And during the 1940s, there was kind of this Revolutionary War revival. They just were so fascinated with New England in general and the Revolutionary War. And so you see so much emphasis on New England traditions in women's magazines. 
So that just kind of reminded me of that. So in these articles, many of, so on the whole page is just lists and lists of who was going where. Many listings showed friends going over to friends' houses for Thanksgiving dinner, some hosting dinner parties and who was there. Some were out of town visiting family. Others had children home from college or visiting from out of town, yet others were enjoying what local restaurants had to offer. Um, So I'm not sure how they got all this information. Everyone must have written in and told what they were doing. But I love this snapshot because while we can read about what the ideal was for wartime, for not traveling, this society page reveals exactly what everyone was actually doing. There was quite a bit of traveling going on. Now, I'm not sure exactly how far they were traveling. Probably not too far, but it was still happening. And I just love to see where people were going. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to see, like, who was invited to whose party. And um, <laughs> so that's just kind of funny to me. Another interesting trend that I found in some of the newspaper articles that I found was talking about how there's just less food. So less food for the Thanksgiving menu when typically, you know, the table is overburdened with food um, that in wartime, the menu was going to be much lighter. So the focus was on quality versus quantity. In the same article I mentioned before, the Evening Sun from Pennsylvania in 1943, it says, in the past, Thanksgiving dinners in America were overabundant. Tables groaned under an array of tempting dishes, far more than we could eat as a rule. We can choose a holiday menu that provides the traditional Thanksgiving dishes without being extravagant or using more than our share. Cut the number of courses, eliminate the frills, and concentrate on having each food prepared to the peak of perfection. I love that. Um, you know, I... I feel like we kind of do that as a rule anyway. We try to make the dishes as best as they can be because it's the special holiday. But I love that they're saying let's eliminate the frills, focus on, you know, preparing the food to the best that it can be and just enjoy these simple, fabulous dishes. <laughs> now, alongside so much Thanksgiving advice... There were quite a few wartime Thanksgiving menus, which, of course, I think are the most fun to read. <laughs> Newspaper column writers suggested ration-friendly Thanksgiving menus that were time-saving as well. In the ever-so-helpful Evening Sun article I keep mentioning, <laughs> the writer was Judith Wilson. And she wrote in her article that her Thanksgiving menu was quote, easy to prepare with a minimum of last minute hurry scurry, close quote. You made the salad, you made the roll dough, and the dessert in advance. The turkey was, of course, to be stuffed the day before. Then on Thanksgiving Day, all you needed to do was put the bird in the oven, make out the rolls, and bake them, <laughs> prepare and cook the vegetables, and at last take the dessert and salad out of the fridge. Easy peasy. So this was her menu. It consisted of roast turkey with dressing, broccoli, mashed potatoes, giblet gravy, cranberry apple salad mold. This was a gelatin. Bran rolls, squash 
chiffon pie, and coffee. They were obsessed with chiffon pies back then, <laughs> which used gelatin. <laughs> um, not my favorite texture, but they look delicious in all the pictures that I've seen. Prudence Penny was another author in the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph in November 1943. She encouraged housewives that even though many of the turkeys had been earmarked for the armed services, their holiday meal could be as festive as ever if they planned ahead. They could even use ground meat patties in place of a turkey. She says, Cranberry sauce, creamed onions, sweet potatoes, celery, nuts, apples, and cider can be managed without straining the pocketbook or ration book. The ground meat patties can be stuffed with your favorite stuffing, and the dinner course can go on from there. Dessert courses can be light, featuring chilled grapes and molasses cookies, or heavier, starring steamed puddings. And then she gives recipes for molasses cookies and a plum pudding. So that's a little bit different. It's straying a little bit from the tradition of the typical American Thanksgiving dinner, but hey, you know, it's okay. (laughs) As long as there's fabulous food on the table, that's okay. I also turned to one of my cookbooks to see what Thanksgiving menus they had on offer. I looked at my Victory Binding of the American Women's Cookbook Wartime Edition from 1943. They had two different Thanksgiving menus on offer, and they are both very different. One has clear soup, breadsticks, salted almonds, celery, olives, roast turkey, giblet sauce, chestnut stuffing, mashed potatoes, Brussels sprouts, cranberry jelly, lettuce or romaine salad with French dressing, cheese wafers, frozen pudding or hot mince pie, bonbons, and coffee. I've seen lots of chestnut stuffing or oyster stuffing. Those were two very popular stuffings in wartime or in the 40s. And so the chestnut stuffing that I understand is just regular bread stuffing, but then you add um, like a cup and a half of chopped chestnuts in there. Sounds good. The second menu they offer is grapefruit baskets, olives, baked guinea hen with gravy, crab apple jelly, candied sweet potatoes, cauliflower au gratin, tomato jelly salad, graham bread sandwiches, individual pumpkin pie with whipped cream, candied orange peel, and coffee. So this is a little bit different take. It doesn't use turkey. So if turkey is out of the question, then you can always go with guinea hens. Now, when I set out doing research for this episode, I wanted to answer one question, and that was, was turkey rationed during World War II? Because, you know, that's a really big Thanksgiving staple. Turkey is so important to a traditional American feast. Well, I came across an article that strives to answer this question about turkey. It's called, Is There a Turkey? And it's dated November 1943. Is there a Thanksgiving turkey? My dear little girl, why do you ask? You haven't been reading those OPA releases, have you? The men who write those releases don't understand that simply because they can't see a Thanksgiving turkey, there isn't one. You and I know that there is a Thanksgiving turkey. Above and beyond all the bread stuffing and cranberry sauce of life, there is a Thanksgiving turkey. 
The world is full of things you can't see, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. Not to believe in a Thanksgiving turkey is as foolish as not to believe that there is a 1944 Ford in the garage, a pound of butter in the refrigerator, and a talon zipper on your new snowsuit. The men who write the OPA releases are like a lot of people in this world. They can only believe in the things which they actually see. You believe in a great many things you can't see. Things like love and heaven and Santa Claus. So long as some people still believe in the unseen world, there will always be a Thanksgiving turkey. In the meantime, fried eggs are very good if you are hungry and eggs aren't rationed. Not yet, whispers an OPA man who will never understand. But you and I know. <laughs> I love this article so much. This article doesn't actually help very much. It's, it's saying... Uh, does a turkey exist? Of course it exists. If you believe in Santa Claus, of course it exists. <laughs> Actually, what I did find out, um, not from this article, but from other articles, were that turkeys in World War II were not rationed. But for a few months in 1943, turkey sales were frozen while producers and wholesalers rushed to fill military orders in advance of the Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's season. So this was like during the summer, way before before turkeys were even needed. Now, turkeys were eaten year-round. Like It wasn't something that was just reserved for Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's, kind of like what we do now. Like, I don't eat turkey except for Thanksgiving, but back then they did eat turkey other times. But in 1943, there was this freeze on turkey sales until they could fill these military orders. Once those were filled, the sales to civilians opened back up and they were free to buy turkeys. The problem was, was that sometimes turkeys in some areas were hard to get. You couldn't find turkeys less than 20 pounds in size <laughs> and while they weren't necessarily rationed they were still really expensive so other meats were suggested chickens goose duck venison veal or even smoked pork loin or ham or like in that menu guinea hens now i was interested in uh some of the costs of these turkeys it, there were a lot of prices quoted in the newspapers, but it really, it, it depended on where in the country the prices were just different. The ceiling price set by the OPA for the turkeys were also different just depending on where in the country they're talking about. So I found, I just settled on one newspaper, the Democrat and Chronicle in New York, uh, the 21st of November, 1942. So 53 cents was the price ceiling set by the OPA. And for a prime dressed turkey, it was between 48 cents to 53 cents a pound. Now, in today's money, I put it through an inflation calculator. That is $8.51 to $9.40 per pound that is so expensive. Even if you went to like a farm and bought a turkey today, which, you know, usually costs between 50 and $60 for a turkey like that. 
it's still cheaper than what they had to pay per pound. And remember, a lot of the turkeys they could find were not below 20 pounds. This was so expensive. In 1943, the prices came down a tiny bit in some places. And by November 1945, turkeys were much more widely available. So it's clear that while turkeys were not rationed and they were available to people, not everyone was able to get a turkey. But we will see uh, when I read our story highlight how it was possible to enjoy a turkey as a, a group of people. When it came to cooking the turkey, I know like people are very fascinated about like what is the best method to cook a turkey. Everyone swears by their own method. I have my own method, (laughs) which is very unorthodox. I cook my turkey a day or two before Thanksgiving and debone it. And I put the meat in the juices the day of, and I put it in the crock pot and just let it heat in their juices for an hour or two. And the meat's so juicy and it's amazing. My mom did that. And we have never looked back (laughs) because it's so easy on the day of. So not everyone's a fan of that because they don't get to, you know, do the traditional carving of the turkey. But that's what I like to do because it's so stress-free on the day of Thanksgiving. But in 1940s, what were they doing to cook their turkeys? I also wanted to know this. I came across an ad for this. It's got this really cute turkey on the ad holding a gun. (laughs) I don't know why he's doing that. Anyway, um, it's an ad for an electric roaster. So they were saying, you know, it's so easy to cook your turkey in your electric roaster. And I'm sure it's saved on electricity or any, you know, other type of fuel. They also did oven roasting. And in 1945, They were hailing this new method where you roasted the turkey at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, breast side down, in a pan, on a rack, and they specified with no water. So I guess before that, you were adding water? I don't know. And then one recipe specifically talked about rotating the turkey and basting it as it baked so it cooked evenly. Also in the story highlight, I'll be mentioning another cooking method. I'm so excited about the story highlight, you guys. (laughs) All right. With baking a turkey, there comes the turkey fat. And in 1942, saw some scrappy Thanksgiving headlines. War over turkey here at home. Thanksgiving is overcast by a domestic scrap all about Greece. It says, turkey is in the war. But just a minute in case you think this is a revelation of a military secret or advanced news on the global war. This hasn't to do with our friends in the Bethesda nation on the Dardanelles, but with a purely domestic conflict. It concerns your turkey, your Thanksgiving turkey, everybody's Thanksgiving turkey. In short, turkey is the occasion of a gobble, a pardon, squabble between two august agencies of Uncle Sam, namely the War Production Board and the Home Economics Division of the Department of Agriculture. While the battle is centered at Washington, no less, reverberations are nationwide. They have come to the banks of the Penobscot. They are right in our midst here in Bangor. 
and all the fracas is whether or not the fat and drippings from a Thanksgiving turkey should go into ammunitions or be kept at home for gravy, or maybe a bread spread against the fast oncoming butter shortage. Yesterday morning's papers had this Associated Press dispatch. Turkey grease and drippings contain glycerin for all explosives, just the same as other kitchen fats, the Regional War Production Board office said today, in asking New England cooks to preserve the grease this coming week and turn it in to aid the war effort. John D. Orr, Executive Secretary for WPB's Massachusetts branch, said that if every household in New England saved the drippings from her Thanksgiving turkey, enough glycerin would be produced to make half a million pounds of gunpowder, one pound of waste cooking fats, he explained, will produce enough glycerin to fire four 37mm anti-aircraft shells. Turkey fats will not only help explosives, but will also aid in making paint for battleships, airplanes, tanks, and other war material, Orr said. This is the statement from one side of the turkey battle from an officer of the forces of WPB. Against this is pitted this protest. A home economic expert authoritatively replied that anyone who has ever cooked a turkey knows that there is no waste fat when it is properly cooked. What little fat is left over from a slowly cooked turkey goes into gravy, she said. She also said that insofar as any conservation of fats for explosives is concerned, housewives may be equally patriotic by using all edible fats as food. Faced by possible rationing of butter next year under a recommended 18% cut in civilian consumption, Cooks should give more attention to using their leftover turkey fat. Turkey fat, for example, is deliciously flavored and suitable not only for making gravy and sauces, but as a general seasoning and in making cakes and biscuits. So this uh, heated battle over the turkey fat was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> this man uh, who is saying, you know, housewives should be setting aside the fat from turkey drippings for explosives but the home economics expert is like uh you obviously have never been near a turkey because there's not a lot of waste fat and it all goes into the gravy and women are just as patriotic using it as food as putting it in explosives so there um <laughs> i found that very funny i'm kind of on the side of gravy so <laughs> there are many other fats that they could use as well so you know, a little fat for gravy is okay. And I find it very interesting, too. They were looking forward to butter rationing and, you know, using the fat that was available to them for food instead of using butter. You know, they were being smart about that. The second iconic food from American traditional Thanksgiving feast that I want to talk about is cranberry sauce. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me talk about cranberry sauce a number of times. I just adore it. I'm not sure why, but there's just something so much fun about it, about cranberry sauce in the 1940s. I don't know about you, but the cranberry sauce log from a can has been a staple of all my childhood Thanksgiving dinners ever since I can remember. <laughs> Whole cranberry sauce and cranberry juice cocktail uh, has been around for a while uh, but the iconic and beloved American cranberry jelly log became first commercially available in 1941. And it was produced by Marcus Uran, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, of the Ocean Spray Company. It was touted as a boon to busy homemakers as a ready-to-serve side dish to accompany meat or as part of a dessert. 
But there's so much more you can do with the jellied log. <laughs> Ocean Spray created special plastic cutters that fit perfectly onto a round sliced from the cranberry sauce log. The cutters can easily be mistaken for cookie cutters, but once you know what they look like, they're easy to spot uh, at antique shops and stuff. Uh, they originally came in a set of three shapes, a turkey, a rabbit, and a Christmas tree. The turkey is red, the rabbit is white, and the Christmas tree is green. What they advertised in their 1941 Cape Cod's Famous Cranberry Recipes book and in ads from the time was that you can take the cranberry sauce log, cut it into half-inch slices, and then using these special cutters, cut out fancy shapes to adorn your holiday feast. They even suggested other shapes that you could cut like pumpkins, stars, and hearts to go with, you know, the accompanying holidays. Another interesting property of this jellied cranberry sauce is that you can cut it into cubes, mix it into gingerbread or muffins, and it keeps its shape as it bakes. Uh, when I was following some of these recipes from this cookbook, I did not believe that. I thought it would melt. They do not. And I was completely shocked. <laughs> it is kind of amazing stuff. I love baking with it. It's very tart and delicious and quite surprising uh, combination with gingerbread. It's really good. Some of the recipes I found in newspapers and in the cookbook, um, these suggestions are hot chicken sandwiches with cranberry sauce, cranberry custard pie, cranberry flour salad, cranberry bread pudding, and cranberry tapioca parfait. So many concoctions. Whichever way they like to have their cranberry sauce, it was definitely a most important part of the Thanksgiving meal. In fact, in my World War II fiction, The War Between Us, there is a Thanksgiving scene, and I wanted to be sure to include this little Easter egg of the cranberry sauce into the scene, and just to show that it was an important part of the meal, and it is the cranberry jelly log. So there you go. And finally, I'd like to uh, leave with these final thoughts by Jane Stafford from the Pittsburgh Press. Uh, she has an article entitled Your Health. This is from November 1942. And she is concerned about the health of Americans with Thanksgiving and wartime. She says patriotic Thanksgiving dinners will follow the rules of good diet this year as never before because none of us now can afford to miss a day's work on account of sickness from dietary indiscretion, nor can we afford to jeopardize our health by a feast that does not feed us adequately. Turkey is on the Thanksgiving menu for our fighting forces, though some of us at home may have to substitute duck, goose, or roast chicken. These foods are equally nourishing, but it is well to remember that goose is even fatter than turkey and to plan the rest of the meal accordingly. Suet pudding and hard sauce made with butter or other fat at the end of the meal that has goose for its main course may make the meal not only fat but fattening and give the dinner a more than comfortable feeling of safety. Fat foods slow down digestion and may therefore make you feel too well filled if you eat m much of them, although you need some fat every day. The Army's Thanksgiving menu starts with fruit cup and includes five vegetables, peas, corn, tomatoes, celery, and lettuce, besides potatoes. You may not want or be able to eat that many vegetables, but be sure to include at least one leafy green vegetable. 
The more vegetables and fruits you add to the feast, the more nourishing it will be, since these foods supply so much in the way of essential vitamins and minerals. Pumpkin pie seems to be the army's choice for a Thanksgiving dessert, and the menu calls also for the usual trimmings in the way of cranberry sauce, apples, grapes, candies, and nuts. Remember, the candies and nuts add calories, which civilians who will not be doing hard labor on Thanksgiving do not need at the end of a hearty meal. Be sure to drink your pint or more of milk on Thanksgiving and eat whole grain or enriched bread or rolls for their extra vitamins and minerals. Cooks can tuck more nourishment into the meal if they stuff them into the fowl. <laughs> so, you know, while we are preparing and eating our feasts this Thanksgiving, this is actually a really good reminder. Right now, there's a lot of sicknesses going around and... I know my family, for one, has been going through random sicknesses. And just having more nourishing food can definitely go a long way. Here is wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. And I hope you enjoy this time with family and friends and with lots of good food. Today's cookbook feature is the Lily Wallace New American Cookbook, published in 1945. This is what I'd call a standard vintage foundation cookbook. It's huge. It has tabbed sections for everything from cereals, eggs, beverages, to meat, vegetables, cheese, and desserts. It even has sections on canning, candy, menus, uh, hors d'oeuvres, and many more. If you'd like a good basic vintage cookbook, this would be a great option. In the introduction, it says, The New American Cookbook has been planned from cover to cover with an aim and purpose not found in any other book to provide and present the way to successful modern cooking and feeding in terms so simplified that anyone who can read may cook and cater right. So that is kind of the mission of this cookbook, <laughs> is to make it so simple that anyone can use this cookbook. Now, what makes my particular copy so special is that this cookbook belonged to a man named George A. Day. What's even more intriguing, and I know this because he wrote his name inside, and what's even more intriguing is that on the back of the color picture for roast chicken between pages 402 and 403, a woman named Mabel wrote an apology letter to George for something that she did. <laughs> she doesn't really go into specifics except for it was something that she did on January 27th, but it's a very heartfelt letter and an outpouring of her love. I find it so intriguing that she would tuck this apology into his cookbook while well, she wrote it into his cookbook. I think it says something about how he used the cookbook. She must have thought or hoped he'd find it someday. And I hope he did. It is just the sweetest thing. And it was quite the surprise when I found it. Um, just such a joy. And it this is like one of my most treasured cookbooks just because of that. Uh, the recipe that I wanted to talk about in this cookbook is for sweet potato pecan pie. I, this was a recipe I tried actually a number of years ago, but it has always stayed with me because it was so good. 
It doesn't use any spices like cinnamon, but it was delicious without it. But I think adding some cinnamon, ginger or nutmeg, or even some cardamom would no doubt make it shine even more. The combination of sweet potato and the pecans are just a match made in heaven. I don't know why they're not seen together more often in pie form. The recipe uh, is a quarter cup butter, a half cup brown sugar, one cup mashed sweet potatoes, three eggs, a third cup corn syrup, a third cup of milk, half teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of vanilla, one cup of broken pecans, and then plain pastry. So you, it's a very straightforward recipe. You cream together the butter and the sugar. You add the mashed sweet potatoes and slightly beaten eggs, and then you mix that well. You combine with the syrup, the milk, salt, vanilla, and pecans. Then you lie, line the pie pan with a plain pastry, turn the mixture into the pan. Then you bake in the hot oven, 425 for 10 minutes, then reduce the heat and you continue baking in a moderate oven, 325 for about 35 to 45 minutes longer. It says the pecans may be omitted, like if somebody can't have nuts, but if you can, oh, why? Why omit those? <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> um, just delicious and such a special pie. I'd really recommend it. So if you're looking for a special pie for Thanksgiving, this would be the one. Uh, I love it. In fact, I'm thinking I might make this for Thanksgiving instead of just the standard pumpkin pie. I'm thinking I will make this sweet potato pecan pie. And the reason is because when my family ate it, they actually don't like sweet potatoes, but they ate this pie. So it is a success. Today's story highlight is very special. It comes from the diary of Mrs. X, which is the diary that I, I have labeled the diary of Mrs. X. It's a diary that I picked up at an antique mall uh, in Nevada. And it's uh, the diary of a woman who lived in California. And it's from the year 1945. And I looked in there to see if she wrote about Thanksgiving and as luck would have it, she did. It has lots of lovely details. And so I wanted to read it to you. And her handwriting is sometimes a little bit hard to decipher, but I think I got most of it figured out. <laughs> it says house cleaning, turkey dressing, Bev stuffed it. Uh, Bev is one of her daughters. We were all up at 630, except for Bev to breakfast and get turkey in at seven. A marvelous bird. She underlined marvelous. 29 and a half pounds on hoof. I think that's what she wrote. <laughs> but so compact. It went into oven easily and cooked beautifully with not even a peak until 2 p.m. Oil saturated cloth over him. No lid. Oven 350 degrees. Seven hours. He was marvelous. No water. No basting. Gravy was sublime too cleaned house, washed mimosas and Haviland dishes, cleaned silver until noon when Joe and Russ came, mother and dad at 11.45, served buffet, ate on half ping pong table in living room, bedspread on table, bed, white, Marseille. So that's a type of bedspread. Joe brought peas, 
and pies and olives, paid $2 on turkey, got $5 from folks, cost $15, would let Nanny pay. She worked. I think she meant wouldn't let Nanny pay because she worked. I'm not sure. (laughs) The next day, she mentions that they finished cleaning up after the turkey dinner. (laughs) Isn't that just the way it is for all of us? Um, So that is the entry. Uh, Lots of little details in here. They got up at 630 in the morning, except for the daughter, (laughs) to get the turkey in at 7 a.m., it was a 29 and a half humongous turkey. I don't think I've even seen a turkey that enormous. <laughs> um, and it cooked at 3.50 until 2 p.m. And they covered it with an oil-saturated cloth. No water, like we talked about before. There's no water. No basting, even. And she said it was marvelous. So, interesting cooking method. These dishes, mimosas and Haviland dishes, I looked these up because the spelling I was not sure about, but when I Googled it, uh, these dishes actually came up. They're, they are two different brands of dishes. So, and what I, I also love, she's mentions a couple times in her diary about eating on this half ping pong table. <laughs> I remember doing that. My grandparents, they got out like the spare tables and they were interesting, you know, when you have to get creative, what tables you come up with (laughs) Um, and that they used their bedspread on the table. And I looked up these white Marseille, is it Marseille, Marseille, I don't know, uh, bedspreads. They are fancy. And right now, like the vintage ones are so dang expensive. Um, But they use them as a tablecloth. (laughs) Um, But they're very fancy. I mean, for a holiday, I can see how they they would be really nice. Um, What I love is that she mentions the cost of the turkey. So Joe um, paid $2 on the turkey. uh, And then she got $5 from her folks for the turkey. And the turkey costs 15 bucks. So... I calculated out the cost of their turkey in today's dollars. It would have cost in today's dollars two hundred and forty six dollars and ninety seven cents. Whoa. <laughs> ah, so expensive. But um, they enjoyed it. So um, it sounds like it was a sublime turkey. Just fantastic. I uh, I really love the details that she puts in here and short and sweet but just she just goes on and on about how amazing this turkey was and how she cooked it so uh really fantastic details well this is the end of the episode i i do hope you enjoyed this surprise and special episode for thanksgiving uh i will be going back on break (laughs) uh who knows i may or may not have a christmas episode it just depends on how busy we are Uh, Or how well, not sick we are. We shall see. Uh, But either way, I will be returning back to my podcast back in January to continue on uh, my episodes. I have so many great things planned. Thank you so much for following along and for listening. I so appreciate all of my listeners. 
I um, continue to be active on Instagram. So come and follow me on there at Victory Kitchen Podcast. And if you want to see any of the supplemental material, including pictures and recipes, uh, you can go to my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.